Hello. As many of you who listen to this podcast regularly know, we tend to record these episodes about a month in advance, which usually isn't a problem because we're talking about an older TV show and the politics involving that. But every now and then something happens that we feel we need to comment on uh, up to the moment. And since this particular episode has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the world, we both wanted to take a second beforehand to voice some thoughts we have on the current situation. So we both wanted to be very, very clear for all of you listening that we support Black Lives Matter as a movement and the ongoing protests that are calling for police reform across the United States and many other places in the world. For too long, the voices of many, especially those in the black community, have been just kind of ignored by the powers that be when it comes to police violence and other you know, inequalities. Uh, for years, many attempts have been made to you know, get reform done, to encourage it, to ask for it. But yet, the police continue to target and kill African Americans and people of col- other people of color. And uh, that, that's just not right. A very long time, there have been many justified outrages building around the targeting of specific groups by the police. And in recent days, following George Floyd's death, there's been massive protests around the world, starting in the United States that have turned a lot of that anger into political action. You know, since these all started, the the world has seen literally hundreds of instances of police brutality, this time targeted at the protesters on the news and social media feeds and elsewhere. Uh, I know myself, several folks that have been out, out to these peaceful protests, only to be met with force, dangerous projectiles and chemical weapons, all deployed by those, you know, that are supposed to serve and protect. The, The police have been you know, you know, starting, starting shit, and it's really not cool. And it should be obvious to everyone that what's being represented here is not the serving and protecting that the police department claims they are here for, and especially not when it comes to protecting members of the black community and anyone who is willing to stand with them. You know, not everyone can march, and that's okay. Not everyone can be on the street. Uh, but if you can, please be safe and focus on the message, getting that done. Yeah, and uh, have each other's back and play it smart. You know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, information out there that could help you, you know, keep things organized, keep things uh, safe and protect yourselves. As for the rest of us, uh, you know, we need to be playing support to keep people talking, keep sharing the messages and the videos, jolling people's assumptions about these events and to not let things just sort of fizzle out without significant changes. You can still support Black Lives Matter and other movements, even if you don't feel safe going out to protests, which is very understandable right now. There are many charities that you can donate to. If you can't afford to donate financially, then you can always write to your local politicians. This happens on a state level. Mm -hmm. So getting out and involved in local politics, even in a very, very small way by writing your local politicians and governors and mayors is a very real way that you can support from home. And so, you know, make sure to get out there, you know, you know, either in, you know, with your letters, on the streets, uh, financially, anything that you can do to help out will do, go a long way. So please do. And finally, you know, never forget that Black Lives Matter and that we're all in this together. So let's change the world. This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, megalomania is a hell of a drug.
everyone! Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! This week we watched a pretty weird episode that was like, I liked it because it was hammy half till like halfway through, and then I hated it because it didn't make any sense and stopped having a point and didn't know what it was doing with itself. But the hammy acting was fun until it stopped being fun. Indeed. I, I guess it sort of re- uh, reached its uh, hammy acting half-life. Yeah. Yeah, it did. <laughs> so this week's episode is called Whom Gods Destroy. Oh, who is destroyed then? I don't know. Well, somebody was, but... Okay. They don't, <laughs> we'll get that later. They just really love sentence fragments as episode titles. Yeah, especially in the third season here. There's a whole bunch of them. So this was written by Lee Irwin. This is the only, I think it's the only Star Trek credit that I could find, but he wrote for a lot of shows like Have Gun Will Travel, New Adventures of Charlie Chan, Tarzan, The Lieutenant. The FBI. Thought The New Adventures <laughs> of Charlie Chan was particularly relevant. Yeah, that's true, actually. So let's go in. We got some guest stars this week. Uh, Steve Innett is Fleet Captain Garth. Wait, where's Wayne? Or Lord Garth, if you prefer. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Steven at, uh, you know, you know, played lots of roles in, you know, the usual suspects as far as 70s and 80s TV is concerned. You know, Gunsmoke, um, you know, other sort of Western sort of stuff. Bonanza, the Virginian. Virginian, Dr. Kildare as well. Uh, police stuff like Lieutenant, you know, usual. And then the person that you might have heard of for this episode is Yvonne Craig, who plays Marta. She was a ballet dancer who then moved to L.A. and is best known for her role as Batgirl in the 1960s Batman TV show. na 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 Batgirl! Then, finally, what I always think is interesting, they, they often have, like, one actor in here who often is one of the only non-white actors that they have as a guest star, and they always have the most interesting filmography. Indeed. So, uh, tell us about uh, Kie Luke. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, Kie Luke plays Governor Donald Corey. He (laughs) is just a prolific Chinese-American actor who played number one son in the old Charlie Chan movies. He played the original Kato in The Green Hornet. And uh, a lot of more modern audiences might know him as Mr. Wing in the Gremlins movies, who's the dude who sold people Gremlins. Oh, yeah. forgot about that one. But yeah, he's been on tons of stuff over the years. Yeah, he was in Kung F- the like original Kung Fu TV show. MASH. Well, MASH. All over. Yeah. <laughs> and like everyone else, he was in the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has... Basically, the longest uh, you know uh, listing here of uh, you know uh, roles of basically anyone who was in this episode. So it's kind of crazy. And he was already like, I've looked up his birth. He was already like in his sixties when he did this. So, yeah, you know, getting all in years, but you know he's been like acting since like the thirties. So okay, this one's gonna be. I don't know if this is gonna be quick to run through or just needlessly confusing. So so should I start with the captain's log? Sure. Captain's log. We're over some planet. It's made of poison, and there's some sort of asylum down there. We got some drugs to help some of the people that are down there. Going to go meet this Donald guy, who's the colony governor. So the Enterprise arrives at Elba 2, 
which is a completely inhospitable, toxic atmosphere planet with an asylum that houses the last 15 or so incurably, criminally insane people in the galaxy. Well, I, I guess we've uh, figured out uh, most of uh, mental illness except for these 15. That's Apparently, cool. it's a weird one. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> The Enterprise is carrying a new medicine that they believe will help eliminate mental illness once and for all. That pesky mental illness. Wait, wait a moment. This is just Prozac, isn't it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Upon beaming down, Kirk and Spock are greeted by Governor Corey, who is in charge of the facility. He tells them about the 15 or so people that they have down here, but now they got an extra one, who is the unfortunate Captain Garth, who was one of the Federation's greatest military commanders. Mm -hmm. And he uh, is very prone to wearing bling, apparently. Yeah, very blingy. Because Garth was one of Kirk's heroes, he wants to meet him. So they go over to the detention area, where before they get to Garth's cell, they're called over by a green Orion woman. It's, uh, I think it's the second time we've seen Orions in this series. Uh, it was, uh, way back in uh, you know, the, 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 the Menagerie, right? Yes. This is Marta. She tells them that Corey is actually an imposter. Of course, they discount this because she's crazy. That's why she's here. Hmm. Well, I, I guess we can't pay any attention to this person who has been marked as not viable as a person we should take seriously. Moving on. Until they round the corner and see Corey in a cell. Uh-oh. Maybe she was right. <laughs> the Corey that they're with suddenly transforms himself into a tall man wearing a furry cape. Fooled you. This is Lord Garth, Master of the Universe. Wait a moment. Where's Skeletor? I just, it was, he says it a lot. <laughs> yes. He, he says, I am the leader of the Masters of the Universe, like every 10 or so minutes. Over the top, but just so amusing given, you know, He-Man came mm. later. <laughs> Did they get inspired by this or? <laughs> just maybe. Yeah. <laughs> It's just insane. <laughs> well, it could have also gone with Princes of the Universe, but then we'd make Highlander references instead. So Garth needed to get Kirk and Spock captive so that he can take the Enterprise over, because apparently his crew mutinied on him, and he wants to use the Enterprise to hunt them down and punish them, as well as anybody else who he happens to be mildly peeved at. You seem to be quite revenge-prone here. How does that make you feel? So Kirk thinks that his crew won't follow the orders of this obviously insane man. That Garth transforms himself into Kirk. Oh no, it wasn't a one-off thing where he could just only transform into the, the Governor Donald Corey there. Yeah. He could transform into anyone. They'll follow the orders of this insane man. Yes. <laughs> he leaves Corey... The actual Cory in the cell explains that they brought Garth here and didn't know that he had mastered the art of cellular metamorphosis that he learned to recover from some grave injuries a little while ago, and this gave him the ability to shapeshift. That's pretty badass, actually. Uh, this is kind of an amazing thing. This, this is potentially world-changing that a random human can learn this sort of thing and become a, a you know, shapeshifter, and this will not matter anything past this episode. Yeah, they like. basically just hand wave this whole thing. It's like, oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's like a, some sort of weird discipline. He used this to do that really obvious thing that they need to stop falling for in movies where he turned into Corey while he was in his cell, and one of the orderlies saw him and went, oh my god, Corey, how'd you get in there? <laughs> I don't know. I was conked over the head and pulled in here by Garth. Yeah. Let me out, please. 
and they, they they've encountered shapeshifters like in this they they exist in this universe you'd think they'd have some sort of like maybe double check that the person's not also outside of the cell yes it's like um this is a little weird let's go get some verification first Come on, guys, be, be genre savvy. So in the asylum control room, uh, Garth Kirk calls the Enterprise for a beam-up, and Scotty says, right away, sir, queen to queen's level three. Um, excuse me? Garth tries a few more times, but Scotty will not <laughs> beam him up because he needs a countersign that Kirk ordered him to use. Indeed, so. Conveniently, Kirk somehow thought this mission, as opposed to any other mission that he's been on ever, would be so dangerous he'd need a countersign to beam up. Well, maybe he learned from uh, uh, the Dagger of the Mind that you know, when he's going down to specifically uh, planets that are meant to incarcerate people, he should have some sort of backup. But he's not learned this for any other planet he goes down on. Yeah. <laughs> this one really, really routine delivery mission where they had no particular reason for thinking anything would go wrong is the one where he needs a complicated call sign, counter call sign to beam back up to the ship. Yes. <laughs> But I guess he lucked out there, you know, finally getting it right. So right. maybe maybe, that, maybe that's like standard procedure, like 90% of the time. And just for all the episodes or the episodes or the times where they f- uh, fail for to get that, except for this one. Yeah, he's like, I can't remember call signs. <laughs> what is that, chess? Um, uh, pawn takes rook. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll bother you later, Scotty. Bye. <laughs> So Garth hangs up, throws a fit, and turns back into Garth. Uh, he, he, the, uh, I think the dramatic slamming his fists on the floor is something that uh, a lot of people on the internet have seen by this point of, of Kirk there, because it wasn't actually Kirk, it was Garth in disguise. Oh, it's misrepresenting the good name of Kirk. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Scotty and McCoy lament back on the ship about, you know, that's weird that that something's going wrong down there, but, you know, they can't get down because it's a force field, and they're so powerful in their ship, but so helpless. Because we got the, the unstoppable force, the Enterprise, versus the immovable uh, object, the force field, so... They cut back to the ship once or twice, and it's basically meaningless, so we're going to ignore it. Yeah, just to give them, uh, the actors, uh, their screen time, so... Yeah. McCoy's actually in this episode, he's just kind of there and bantering. Yeah, he stands there next to, next to Scotty, who does things. Mm-hmm. Garth goes back to the cells and invites Kirk to dinner. He insists on t- inviting him to dinner, in fact, and then he's going to bring Spock along because we haven't seen Spock in a while. Yeah, Spock just kind of got like phaser stunned, like off screen, and they dragged him off. And yep. yeah, he's been missing since then. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, what did you do with Spock when you stunned him? It's like, when did this happen? During the commercial break, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Saves on special effects budget, you know? <laughs> They eat with Garth and the other inmates. Um, there's also some entertainment, which apparently is two aliens doing CrossFit. They're doing a wheelbarrow around the room. The future is wild, man. <laughs> Marta starts to fondle Kirk, which bothers Garth, except no, definitely doesn't bother me, not at all. Who, oh, me, jealous? Never. Hmm. There seems to be some sort of stress, emotional, you know, turmoil in this Garth fellow. Hmm. Who would have thunk? He threatens to kill Marta several times. She insists that he just doesn't like her because she's smart and write poetry. They say that she should recite some of her poetry. She recites Shakespeare. Then Garth tells her it's horrible and threatens to kill her again. Says that she needs to dance now, even though that's also horrible. He's been pretty... I don't know, this whole thing's stupid. And then she does a sexy Orion dance. 
Because we got to get that uh, sex appeal in this episode as well. Yep. Spock says it reminds him of the dances that Vulcan children do in school. Just more coordinated. So is that good or are you trying to demean her? I don't know. Also, can you just like imagine Vulcan children doing this weird sexy dance, but stumbling around yeah. like toddlers? <laughs> That's not an image I had quite informed in my head until this moment. <laughs> you know, I, I think Spock was trying to have a subtle dig at it, the whole thing, but yeah, it's just kind of like, what? <laughs> so after the dance, it is exposition time. Hooray! Exposition! What, what's going on? Hi. Garth was one of the Federation's greatest military commanders. Apparently back when they needed a lot of those, because they do make some weird things about, well, now we're peacemakers. He goes, ah, weak fools. Mm. So, so like, ten years ago, there's, like, a major war or something like that, and Garth was all about the military, and the Federation was as well, but since then, everyone's gone, you know, super-duper, you know, hugs and love? Apparently. Just, like... Like, overnight, like a, a switch was flipped and suddenly everything's great? Seems like, yeah. There was some sort of accident that left Garth very near dead, and the people of Antos Four taught him how to heal himself with cellular regeneration techniques. This also seems to have affected his mind, because he immediately decided to destroy them. Well, that's gratitude for you. For this, his crew mutinied, and he was sent here. But now... He sees the Federation has become weak and peaceful, and as soon as he gets out there with the Enterprise, all of the right-minded military people will join him in his quest to take over the galaxy from these weak-minded fools. Hmm, I think this guy might be a jerk face. No, a little. Just, just a hunch, yeah. <laughs> he then asks Kirk about chess, specifically how he would respond to Queen to Queen's level 3, and Kirk goes, Ha, I know. <laughs> Not that stupid, Garth, come on. <laughs> So Garth brings out his special torture chair, which is a medical device that he modified to cause pain without damaging the tissue so that you can keep doing it forever and ever. I'm, I'm having more flashbacks to the dagger of the mind here. <laughs> I saw an interview that said they basically just made this as a soft reboot of that episode. It's very sort of different direction it went, though. But anywho. <laughs> he demonstrates this on Governor Corey, then on Kirk until Marta begs him to stop it. And tells Garth that she can seduce the information out of Kirk if she has a chance to. Well, um, I guess thank you, Marta, for not torturing Kirk anymore. Well, Kirk wakes up in bed where Marta approaches him. She tells him that she wants to escape with him. And she just told Garth that she can get the password so that she could help each other escape. She also got Spock out and he's on his way now. Oh, that's convenient. Um... So maybe she, you know, from the very start was on, on Kirk's side and just been sort of playing the, you know, weird seductress role this whole time. And that would kind of explain why, you know, she's kind of been, you know, getting buddy-buddy with Kirk and making Garth intentionally jealous and things like that. This, this would kind of make sense in a way. So she kisses Kirk, then tries to stab him, yelling about how she has to kill all of her lovers, which I guess is her, why she's here. Whoops. I, I guess that whole plan that she might be a good person is out the window. Spock comes in just in time to knock her away and neck pinch her, and then they both head to the control room. Hmm. All right, let's get out of here, Spock. They contact the Enterprise, but when Scotty asks for the code sign, Spock looks at Kirk. He goes, eh, come on, code sign. Kirk immediately becomes suspicious and goes, well, Spock will give you the code. 
then Spock turns into Garth, of course. Dun, dun, dun. It was all a trick. All a plan to get Kirk to say the, the phrase and get them beamed up. The Kirk tries to remind Garth of his past and how great the Federation is. And he was a great man before. And it seems to be working a little bit until he just knocks Kirk out again. You're, you're trying to make me remember how I was before, apparently. Um, I can't have that. Later... Garth has now decided that the reason that Spock and Kirk aren't giving him the proper respect is because he has not yet been coronated as ruler of the galaxy. So, yeah, he puts a chair on top of a table, and then all the other inmates line up for the ceremony. You know, the, these other inmates for being the criminally insane people that they're supposed to be are, are very subservient here. Garth decides that there's nobody who can crown him except himself because he's doing the whole Napoleon thing now. I am my own legitimacy here for my crown. He also appoints Marta to be royal consort and Kirk as the heir apparent to his reign. Then as Kirk hey, removed Robert. and brought to the control room. So if, say, Garth were to die, then all the prisoners would follow Kirk then? I uh, know, look at that plot thread that they are setting up very obviously. Yes, hmm, interesting. Let's forget it ever happened. Okay. <laughs> Once in the control room, Garth tells Kirk about his cool new explosive that he's got. It's in a container that he's throwing around, and he says that it's enough in this tiny water bottle to destroy the entire planet. Well, uh, then maybe we should be more careful with it? To demonstrate, he has a piece of it about the size of a grain of sand put into Marta's neck, and he sends her outside and turns on a view screen where they can see Marta struggling to breathe in the poisoned atmosphere, and then Garth uses a remote control to blow her up. Yeah. Now, uh, technically, it was uh, the necklace Garth gave her earlier, uh, not just her neck. So just be. It always blows her up out of nowhere. Yeah, just like kabloom! All right, well. Thought you decided to take her as your consort. Um, this is kind of out of nowhere. <laughs> Garth then announces his intention to do the same to Spock. Also, Scotty's doing something on the Enterprise, but it doesn't accomplish anything, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're going to plan some things, and they're not really going to go anywhere. Spock, in his cell, hears some guards approaching and pretends to be unconscious, and when they pick him up, he does a double neck pinch. Hooray, wait. That means he's unlocked another uh, skill point and is able to do a double takedown. Very good, Spock. You, you're going to make good use of that. Yeah, you don't get forward. that till Assassin's Creed 2. Yeah. <laughs> he arrives in the control room uh, where he's interested to see two Kirks, each threatening the other. I, I hope we don't ever run into this situation again. Yeah, Spock does the, <laughs> you've seen this before, ask the two clones questions, one answers, the other one goes, that's why this answer doesn't really matter, anyone could know that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. sort, of, sort of back and forth, but Spock has a plan, sort of. Yeah, Spock decides that this doesn't matter, because Garth is using some amount of energy to hold his form, so all he has to do is sit there and wait for Garth to turn back. Oh, oh okay, that kind of makes sense, we just wait it out. Yeah, it's one of the only times someone's actually applied any amount of thinking to this situation, which I appreciate. <laughs> Though I, I do do really enjoy the, the version they did in Red Dwarf, uh, where there is uh, the character Lister and another Lister right next to him. And they, you know, it's like, and the, the, the alien that's impersonating him is able to read his mind and basically emulate him perfectly. And But there there is one fatal flaw, though. It's 
assumes that their perspective on who they are is true. And so when they give, you know, one of the character, you know, one of them, uh, you know, uh, Lister's guitar starts wailing on it, like, you know, just kind of badass. And, and everyone's kind of looks at, you know, you know, this Lister and shoots him because Lister thinks he's good at guitar, but it's actually crap. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty good one. Yes. <laughs> but this one, I think, is uh, the, the less humorous and more logical uh, best alternative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So when Spot goes to grab a chair, because he wants to be comfy while he waits for this to happen, I guess, one of the Kirks knocks him out. Oh no! They both start fighting. One gains the upper hand, and Spock, who now has his phaser again, shoots that one, and it turns back into Garth. And he tells Scotty, Queens to Queens level one, and it's done. Hooray, we can leave. (laughs) Later, Corey's back in charge. They've brought down the medicine for the inmates. They seem to be responding to treatment, including Garth, who's now all calm and has no memory of anything that's just happened, including meeting Kirk ever. Well, that's kind of convenient. I guess he gets a a fresh slate and uh, can start over as a nice guy again. So, Kirk asks Spock what took him so long to figure out who was who in the clone fight. Sox says that he's decided that since Kirk was in a weakened state, he would obviously lose a fight to Garth, who would win if they got into a direct fist fight. So he just had to engineer that situation and wait to see who won. Holy smokes, Spock had two plans. Kirk thinks that was a bad plan because it involves Spock letting himself get bonked on the head really hard. Yeah, you know, Spock's super powerful anyway, so he, you know, just a few hit points, he's fine. But then it's time to beam up. The end! end so uh that was an episode yep yeah uh, i i will say i think i enjoyed it uh more than some of the ones we've uh covered recently but it was still kind of like what yeah it was it was just weird i mean i enjoyed some i enjoyed the first bit because garth is over the top and hammy it's basically everything that people cite when they're like oh i like original track because it's so hammed up and they don't take any of it too seriously and oh my god so he is the embodiment of hammy acting this guy doesn't care he's chewing the scenery so hard he's choking yes he's out overacting uh you know shatner which is impressive (laughs) yeah until he is shatner Dun, dun, dun. But yeah, it's, it's it still has some 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 weirdness going on here that it goes beyond even the the hammy acting. Uh, there's the whole kind of weird convoluted plots and things like that that seem to be leading somewhere, but it's kind of a red herring, I guess. And then it's it always comes back to him trying to escape, Garth trying to escape here. And trying to manipulate a situation where that will become possible or the only way forward. And none of his plans really work out at all. And the, the best one he get, can, can come up with still relies on Kirk not remembering that he could transform. And so it fails. <laughs> they, they keep doing this with crazy characters. It's something that they keep falling back on in all TV. It's a bad writing trope. Yeah. Where they just... This character's crazy. We've identified them as crazy. They're in an asylum or what have you. So their motivations don't have to make any sense, and they can just switch around and do whatever on the fly. Indeed. You know, 
it doesn't make any sense for what they're presenting, but it also makes the storytelling haphazard and all over the place because you can't follow what they're doing. Yeah, they don't have a internal sort of uh, structure to uh, to their motivations and behaviors, and so it's as you said, lazy writing. But it's also can become quite confusing for the for the viewer. Yeah, it's like well, yeah, it, it, I guess in some ways it's sort of asking the viewer to suspend their disbelief in a specific way that is not super realistic. And even when you're talking about a show where you're flying around in a spaceship and people beam places. <laughs> I also think it's so weird when they do, anytime they do mental illness or, you know, in criminally insane, which I don't think is a thing. I don't think criminal insanity is an actual thing. It's something that pops up generally in media, like Star Trek and other things, to sort of imply that someone is not just, uh, you know, quote, a, a lunatic of some sort, but a dangerous one as well. Because, yeah, that, that whole criminality sort of thing is, yeah, these people are, you know, have clearly done something horrible, not just to have mental illness. So they have shown that they themselves to be uh, you know, physically dangerous to those around them. So according to Cornell Law School's website, criminal insanity is just a legal definition that says the person is too mentally unstable to understand the things they are doing are wrong. Well, is, do you think that is applying here? Cannot be convicted of a crime because criminal conduct involves the conscious intent to do wrong, a choice that the criminally insane cannot meaningfully make. So uh, I guess the uh, pleading insanity sort of defense uh, Basically, sort of is yes. all about that stuff. Yes. Which also, if we're mentioning that, I should say is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rare, unlikely scenario. It's not happening every single time like you see in Law & Order. It's not like the first thing anyone goes to of like, I don't know, spin around in circles in the courtroom and they'll have to label you innocent by reason of insanity. It's a little more complicated than that. And so that kind of defense doesn't really fly generally. Anyway, this is an argument that I keep making with people, especially around something when they're d doing this sort of mental illness thing. I don't actually believe that people can act irrationally. There's certain things like you wouldn't have like physical control of your body, like seizures and stuff, which mm -hmm. is not really an action that you're under control of. But if you're making decisions, you're acting rationally as per your view of the world. So like mm -hmm. if you think about it, even someone in an incredibly extreme situation, like a psychological, like a psychotic break. There was a story of someone who like had a psychotic break and later was being interviewed about it. And he knew that assassins were going after the president. And he was the only one that knew this. So he had to get to Washington and save the president. And that's a, like if you're the only person in the world who knows that there's an assassination plot against the president and you want to save them, rushing out to do it may be a little silly, but it's a perfectly rational response to that situation. Yeah, you're acting on information that you believe to be 100% true. And so, yeah, the, the, the action follows the, motive, you know, the information that you're presented with, even if that information makes no sense to anyone else. Which is the thing when they're writing these things, you just have like a, you have a freaking crazy person that's just, oh my God, random, haha, look at all this stuff. It's like, no, they, they would be internally consistent. Like, they're, they're operating off of information that you don't have because their information is internal, but the way that they're acting on that information would be consistent to their character. 
So I, I guess then maybe the question is, who are these characters that we're presented with in this episode? There is uh, uh, Marta and uh, uh, Garth that are given any sort of characterization as far as their possible mental illnesses go. Uh, Garth, I would suggest their closest would be narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and I should have looked up more that would try to help me pin <laughs> down Marta. But in both cases, there's definitely a disconnect between what the actual mental illness, actually how it works, and sort of how the, the quote, the Hollywood uh, interpretation of these things are. And so the Hollywood interpretation of these things is not not generally accurate to what's actually going on. And so this, in the long run, leads to a misunderstanding of what these uh, different uh, you know, mental illnesses actually, you know, how they actually function uh, is the general populace, which is kind of a disservice, but they still want to toss it in there, even though they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Well, this is a thing that always gets me, and I kind of hate it, that they... Well, one, well, we can talk about psychiatric disorders and, di and mental illness diagnosis in a minute because it's way more complicated than people think. But yeah, something like this, you, what they, I've seen a lot of the writers do, and some, even some modern TV shows. I don't want to call anything out by name because I don't want to start fights. But like, even some modern TV shows, they present a character that has a bunch of tropey, random, a low, so random, crazy stuff. Then they go, this sort of almost seems like we're writing this one psychiatric disorder. So let's call it that. And then, oh, my God, look at our treatise on mental illness. Aren't we great? Yeah. And it's it's very much coming at it from the wrong direction. You should understand what the mental illness you're trying to describe is before you, you know, try to uh, generate the behaviors of the character. And then we have a few things, like Marta, in the beginning, says that Corey is an imposter, which was real in the episode, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. That's also a very common uh, psychiatric symptom called uh, Capgras syndrome, where you believe that a close family, family member or other person that you know very well has been replaced by an identical imposter. Hmm. Uh, if, if, you're, if you ever start feeling about that way about me, Gepwin, yes, I have been replaced. Just so you know. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I'll have to believe myself. Okay, good. I, I want you to feel feel okay with that. So this is something, in media, it's difficult. Uh, what we're doing right now is something called armchair diagnosis, and it's generally frowned upon. Because you're not supposed to, like, randomly diagnose people from the little snippets that you see in media. Now, this yes. usually is like, if you're using it to talk about mental health issues or illness, you can do it with fictional characters because they're written and they're not real people. But you're never going to get an accurate view of how someone's acting based on the little pieces that you see in media and things, which is when someone comes up and says like, oh, this political figure has narcissistic personality disorder. It's like, one, I know for a fact you, random person writing this op-ed, has no idea what that is. And two, you can't diagnose people by watching TV appearances. Yeah, because the TV appearances are only going to be what's presented through that filter of what what happens when the cameras are on. And so that can be highly controlled. Uh, you know, even in, quote, reality TV, it's all a production. They, what you are being presented with is to build certain narratives and certain ways to, you know, you know, sort of have you perceive these characters, even when it's, quote, supposed to be real. Okay, who's ready to get into some incredibly controversial mental illness discussions? Okay. So, psychiatric diagnoses 
as we understand them, are not real. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Basically, you could think of all of them sort of as what you would call a, in kind of medical part, it's sort of like a syndrome, which is not itself a disease or a particular disorder. It is a cluster of symptoms that you often see occurring together. A convolution of things that seem you know, potentially associated, but maybe just kind of all happen at the same time and create a certain effect. So I've had a few th sources on this thing, but uh, the one that I've been reading very recently is called The Book of Woe um, by Gary Greenberg. It does, it does, does Gary say woe unto yeah. the... <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a book about the DSM, which is where all modern mental health diagnoses come from. The gold standards these are the how if this then that sort of stuff the this is the definition the the dictionary as it were yes so the way that they make psychiatric diagnoses is completely different from say a medical diagnosis where someone comes in with an illness you examine them you find the thing that's wrong in their body you go like okay this gallstone or this bacteria or this whatever causes this set of symptoms so we can look for this set of symptoms we can test them for this bacteria we can say the yes you have this and then give them whatever treatment is prescribed for this case the psychiatric diagnoses are these decided by committee political entities we talk about it in the same sort of terms like we've discovered a mental illness or something like uh, there was an example of uh, PTSD finally being recognized, which was very, very important in helping people who had it and legitimizing some issues and things. But it wasn't like discovered in a medical sense. There was a political movement of veterans, um, Vietnam veterans who were having a very bad time, were not having their symptoms and mental problems taken seriously by the professional community. And so there was an actual like like political movement sort of push to get PTSD officially recognized as a disorder that they can then get treatment for because you have to have these disorders and things the way our system worked in order to get you know medical help or insurance coverage or any number of other things basically you have to get your disorder into one of the DSM books or something that's officially recognized otherwise you can't like get insurance to cover you yeah so you end up just suffering needlessly and what one there is help available but you're being denied that just because of how the system is set up and you know you you don't have you haven't clicked the, the right checkbox here yeah but we imagine it in some sort of scientific way that you you get a bunch of patients who have the same symptoms and you do some sort of tests or something and you you like find the ones that are right or you measure their brain chemicals or something and that's how you come up with a diagnosis for something like depression that's just not true the dsm criteria for things like like ptsd or depression are basically a grab bag of various things that are completely up to interpretation like depression has things like you must have had three of these which is like you know um 
loss in interest in activities, loss of interest in sex, uh, lethargy, just this whole list of things. It's like you have to have at least three of this list of seven things, and then there's another list. It's like you have to have two of this list of five things and one of this list of another thing, and it had to have occurred in a certain time period over the last, like, three weeks. And this is something that is decided by committee. They get a group of psychiatrists and professionals together in a room and they talk about their patients and go, well, I feel like this would be a useful thing for me to put into the diagnosis in order to diagnose someone with depression. And so you get sort of this construct that it has to come through this particular group of folks in order to be sort of treated as, you know, 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 the the, the recognized, uh, you you know, mental condition uh, that everyone else will sort of be like, oh, okay, yeah, then that's that's something you actually can have, as opposed to something that hasn't been added yet, uh, that's like, oh, you're just making this up, whatever. And in fact, a lot of working psychiatrists and therapists don't bother. They grab a diagnosis that isn't too scary and that has a wide variety of symptoms that is possibly reoccurring. They write that number on the insurance form. They give it to every patient. And that's just how they get the insurance to pay for it. <laughs> it's like, well, it's kind of under this giant umbrella here. And I can, you know, subscribe this sort of treatment to you know, help the people out. But what it actually is, is ah, you know, it's, it's not not easily identifiable like this. And there's a lot of behind-the-scenes politics and things. There's a story in this uh, book of woe that I'm reading where one particular guy got this idea that a group of children who were particularly difficult to manage, like they had been kind of grouped under the attention deficit disorder grouping. So this guy was finding some children who weren't responding to the treatment as well. He decided that what he was finding was actually this weird sort of precursor to bipolar disorder and not, like, not ADHD. And that's a much more serious illness. But when they actually looked into it in a long-term observational study, not all of the kids that they gave this diagnosis wound up with bipolar disorder later in life, but then he said that they weren't triggered. He basically just really, really pushed for this thing. And Mm -hmm. he just started giving kids really, really, really strong antipsychotic medications, which are pretty dangerous. Yeah. And later it came out that a drug company that made antipsychotics and wanted to expand their market share had paid for 90% of this guy's research. Whoops. Seems like there might have been some corruption involved here. But there's still people who are doing this. There's a there's a, been a recent rise in the number of hard antipsychotic drugs that are being prescribed to children. Because there's still a push to this. Because people in these situations, by the time you see an expert in the field like that, one of these like industry leaders, one of the people who's making di- up diagnoses and is in a position to like write these papers and things, you've gone through every other psychiatrist you can get to. Yes. So the people in this situation are really desperate. Their kid's in trouble. They've been kicked out of several schools probably. They're like at the end of their rope. And this guy says, oh, not only do I know what's wrong, everyone else has been misdiagnosing them. I know what's wrong. It's really simple to fix. Here's a pill. Like who wouldn't do that? Yeah, I'll give you the miracle cure, 
and uh, trust me that I know what the hell I'm talking about. But the thing is, is he came up with this. I'm sure that he had good mm-hmm. intentions, but he came up with this Maybe. from research. He was pressured by lobbyist groups. It is a political entity. And it's useful. There's a certain usefulness to this in the way that we are defining things, the way that it helps people understand what's going on with themselves. There's, I'm not saying that it's completely useless to have names for certain things like this, but the way that we're clinging to them and the way that we think about them is the same way that we think about diagnosis in physical medicine, and it's just not the same thing. Yeah, it's a lot more squishy. There is so much more uncertainty, and it's, I guess it's sort of like, okay, we're, we're here on the planet Earth, and we are trying to determine the, 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 the nature of a civilization on a distant planet, and we got three radio signals, and that's it as far as what we can tell about them, and none of them make any sense as far as language goes, but they're just kind of weird, and we're trying to analyze them, and uh, so now it's time to sort of make the assumptions in order to try to ca- categorize what sort of people these are. And you might get lucky, you might not. And there is going to be, and because there's so much uncertainty there, you're not going to be able to come up with a conclusive answer based on the limited uh, you know, information that is available, just like when it comes to a, a mental illness and uh, you know, how people, you know, actually their brains work. There is a limitation that we can't get through that, you know, we, would would be really nice to get through in order to have a concrete sort of answer to this stuff, but we don't. We can't get there. Well, what's kind of interesting with that is something like these taking all these symptoms and trying to clump them into usable groups mm-hmm. is actually much more akin to the biological idea of taxonomy than yes. any other sort of science. And taxonomy is incredibly complicated. It's basically taking groups of whatever and trying to lump them together into usable larger groups based on whatever. But what you're basing that on is fairly arbitrary depending on the person. I saw a video where they were explaining taxonomy and they got four taxonomists who work in the biological field and they gave them a bunch of candy, like just some M&Ms and skills and things. And they said, okay, create taxonomic groups for these candies and one person went completely by size and one person went completely by color and one person went completely by brand just randomly so it it really kind of comes down to once again that sort of internal bias people have to kick off where they're going to be starting when they think about these problems and because of there's you know there's an internal bias you know that of course leads into that you know the, the sort of the political dimension there uh, that there is going to be different sort of perspectives that people are going to be bringing into this whole situation that are going to be wildly divergent, and then you're going to have to figure out who's more correct, I guess. <laughs> well, the only particular problem that you hit when you do something like that, like each of those examples, taking the candy and organizing it by color or size or brand, are useful. They're useful ways to organize that set of candy, depending on what you want to do. But are they fundamental? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. The problem is when you take a model like that, that's just a way for us all to agree. These models are ways for us all to agree how to talk about these things more easily. Mm-hmm. Like if I take all this candy and I call it the blue group, anytime I say the blue group, you know I'm referring to this set of candy. Yes. The problem is when you take that model and start acting like it accurately represents reality. And when something is outside of it, Instead of changing your model to more accurately represent the new information you've gotten, you try to force the thing that's outside into your existing model. Mm-hmm. 
And so you get some, some issues with this. And so you can't quite, you know, if you, you're so focused on building this model that when you're trying to make use of this model, it starts becoming useless over time. Yeah, because the model is a description of reality. It's not an accurate representation of reality. It's a simplification of what's going on that we can use to talk about it. So yes. trying to treat anything that's outside of your existing model as aberrant or trying to make weird, weird contradictory things or force it back into your existing model instead of just changing your model to represent what's actually happening. You get so attached to the model you're using that you're ignoring what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that we were hitting a lot recently with mental illness, especially the way that they're talking about it here where they have, like, I guess, medicines that can fix it all. We keep trying to come up with a physical model for mental illness. And everyone, we've been just around the corner. It's coming in a few months, probably. We're going to have a blood test for depression in like three weeks, I promise. And we've been saying that for about 20 years. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the, uh, there's going to be commercially viable fusion in about 10 years, guys, for reals. But saying that since the 60s. <laughs> and the problem that you have when you're trying to come up with a physical model for mental illness, uh, I'm not saying that you can't find any kind of physical causes for certain things. There definitely are, for, depending on what you're talking about. But some of it is very subjective. Some of it has these political bents to it. And you just can't work backward from that. You can't take, here is what we've all agreed is depression based on this cluster of symptoms. Let's find the physical thing that is causing depression because you didn't, you didn't diagnose depression from something physical. You, just, you diagnosed it from a cluster of symptoms that was somewhat arbitrary. So there's probably nothing physical that's causing that entire cluster of arbitrary symptoms. If you worked the other way and found a physical thing and said everyone with this physical thing has these symptoms, then you could do that. But you can't do it the other direction. I think a good, I guess, uh, sort of an example of how this doesn't, you know, how this dynamic sort of working is, what, what is things that are blue? Well, blue doesn't actually exist. Everyone keeps talking about that. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, if, if you, could, you could describe a collection of I items or objects or phenomenon that uh, all give off this color, and you, everyone can identify saying, yeah, this, this is blue here. Uh, but one of them is the sky. One of them is cobalt. One of them is, uh, you know, my shirt. I happen to be wearing a blue shirt right now. Uh, and eat the, what's causing each of these to appear blue to the outside observer is, you know, you know there is a, there, there is the, the, the quantum mechanical, you know, changing of energy levels and things like that, but the substance behind it to create that specific dynamic is different for each one of these. Uh, you know, there's different, you know, uh, you know, core uh, molecular nuclear, uh, you know, arrangements that are generating uh, the, you know, the, you know, the, this this net effect, this this you know, emergent behavior. And so, if we want to destroy the color blue. Well, we have this beam that can now destroy the, uh, you know, all, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the atmosphere. Well, it's not going to take care of my shirt, probably. Well, blue <laughs> is a very interesting one because blue is, in fact, the most recent color. There's been a lot of kind of linguistics research recently that blue is a color that didn't pop up until very recently in human history, and everyone goes, "But how could that be? Like the the ocean is blue, the sky is blue. There's so much just blue crap around." But nobody talked about the sky being blue until recently. They even, this one guy even did like a sort of anecdotal thing where he did he purposely 
didn't tell his daughter what color the sky was until she was about five or six. And then was like, so what color is the sky? And she looked, I was like, I don't understand. Like, it's not a color. It's the sky. Like maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's kind of off gray. If I look at it. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 you, you sort of view these things uh, based on a, a certain uh, a cultural, I guess, uh, uh, construct in order to even to, you know, properly try to set them in your, your taxonomical, uh, you know, uh, setup there. And if you don't have that setup already, then you once again you're running in situations like, oh, it's just the sky; it's sky colored. Well, that gets that to a particularly interesting other point I wanted to make that it's it's pretty well recognized in a lot of circles. It's become very controversial now, but mental illness is a social construct. What you consider to be mentally ill is socially defined as aberrant behavior. Like how until a few years ago, homosexuality was in the DSM as a mental disorder. There was a massive political push to get it changed. Yeah, in fact, I've run into people that cited it being in a ver previous version of uh, the DSM as reasons why they were anti-homosexual. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> One, you don't know they've changed that, right? Two, What? <laughs> There's a story in this book. Yeah, so the, I'm not going to be able to read the Greek name, but this, uh, this guy, Samuel Cartwright, in 1850, discovered a new mental disease. Like, he was the first one to come up with this. It was this, this amazing discovery. And it basically explained why ordinarily perfectly happy slaves would run away. Oh, dear. And it was something that was super useful to people because you, the plantation owner, can look out for the early symptoms of this weird mental disorder and know which of your slaves have it and are more likely to try to run away because of their weird mental disorder. And so now you can preemptively start treating them. Ugh. So you have and things so, like that. There's yeah. also a pretty well-known well thing. This was something that like uh, Freud tried to deal with. It's been in... It's been in, in, in psychology since we started having modern psychology. There is absolutely no recognizable difference between depression and grief. Mm -hmm. The only thing that is in any of the diagnostic criteria that separates the two is duration. But then you have to come up with an arbitrary duration that is the appropriate amount of time to grieve uh, before it becomes uh, depression. Weeks? Is Apparently, it, is it, it is three weeks, months? actually. Oh, oh, I was just guessing there. <laughs> and then after those three weeks, if you feel sad at all, then it's obviously going to have to be depression now. So there's a certain social construct to these things. Like something that the society feels is aberrant is defined as a mental illness. And there's, there's like people always cite these different things. There are definite exceptions to this. There are things like schizophrenia. There are things like bipolar disorder that we don't understand the mechanisms of cause people a lot of pain, cause things like psychological breaks that are very painful and hard to go through that probably have some mix of physical and environmental causes. These are things that are not necessarily socially defined, even though our response to them is socially defined. Someone who went, someone with schizophrenia who had a psychological break in certain, in certain cultures is considered to be wiser and more in touch with certain parts of reality than other people. 
It's like, oh, they've seen holy visions, and so we should pay attention to what they have to say. Yeah, instead of in our society where we medicate them until they stop doing that. You're freaking me out, and so we have to make you, you know, oppress this uh, side of you so I feel better. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't medicate it because people in these situations are suffering. Someone with bipolar disorder mm -hmm. is having a really horrible time. Lithium, yep. which was one of the earliest uh, used psychiatric medications, was a complete and utter game changer. It improved people's lives immeasurably. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't medicate certain things or we shouldn't look at physical causes for things, but there's a lot of stuff like depression, like some of these other things that are more socially defined. So there's sort of a, a big giant Venn diagram of stuff that is predominantly socially defined, stuff that has more of a, uh, a physical mechanism be behind, behind it, uh, and, you know, just like, you know, your more general uh, medical issues. And then these sort of, you know, uh, collection of syndromes that are a little bit of both. And you have a school of thought, which we are supposed to not talk about now, because the way we're talking about mental illness now is still a little, like, people are still a little on edge about criticizing it because it's only just now being accepted that you need help for these things, and some of them are legitimate reasons that you are in pain. Yes. But there is a school of thought that says what you define as a mental illness is a very useful means of political control. Like we were saying, you define homosexuality as a mental illness. You define being transgender as a mental illness. So you now have people in your society that are doing something that you, for whatever reason, don't like or find aberrant. You can now define it as a mental illness. And now, because you are mentally ill, you can be discounted as a person. Yes. Just like Marta was in the episode. Yeah, they. she was saying a legitimate thing. Like, who knows mm -hmm. why she was in on this, apparently, or maybe not. It's very unclear, which I didn't like with her character, Yeah. whether she w was in with him or not. But she's, she told them a real fact. This, this Corey mm -hmm. is an imposter. They didn't believe her because she's mentally ill. So, you know, you automatically discounting uh, folks uh, that are, you know, quote, in the outgroup of the mentally ill... Uh, without having to, you know, feel anything for them if they're suffering, and listen to their opinions if they have something to say, or basically pay them any attention at all. And so you can sort of cut them out of society by putting them in this uh, society-defining uh, defined uh, definition, and you can very much sort of, you know, use that as as a, you know on the next step of it's like okay, we've cut them out of the rest of our society. Now let's go ahead and just start oppressing them as however we like. And once you start oppressing the people, it's used as self-evidence for the mental illness. People, there's still, I was hearing an interview, there's still a couple of psychiatrists who disagreed with homosexuality being removed as a mental disorder because they treated people who were homosexual who wanted to be cured of it because of the way they were treated socially. So maybe we should just not treat them crappily. Yeah, oppressing someone and making their life horrible because of something like that reinforces the idea that it's a mental illness because you have this, you have this aberrant thought pattern happening, and it's making you feel awful. So of course it's a mental illness that's making you feel awful and we should cure. And so instead of removing that oppression, that you know, that external forces... Yeah, you know, it's, it's I have to be the one who changes because that's what society's telling me to do. Yes, so a lot of this can be seen as a political mechanism. A, a means of control. 
there's this this long-running thing. We keep trying to remove philosophy from various things because we want to be all sciencey and logical, but it's a bad idea. There's this kind of discussion. There's this difficult line to walk in modern, in like modern psychology and psychotherapy, which is there's legitimate problems in the world. Yep. Like people have been talking about this now. I've seen a few articles, especially talking about the COVID virus. Like, there are legitimate problems. There are things going wrong. Is it moral to take someone in a bad situation who feels bad because of the bad situation they're in and make them feel better about it? That's, yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. I guess to a certain degree, it should be up to them. Uh, if they want to, you know, sort of escape for a bit uh, or even permanently you know, from the, the ongoing situation, but it would be better to, you know, solve the core problem so we don't have to even worry about that as a question i still think there's a little it's very complicated my view is like who said that feeling good all the time was the goal yeah it's not so easy guys there isn't a uh, a miracle pill that will just make it all go away forever and that's what something that i always liked about especially next generation they did it a little bit in other in the other star treks but next generation they never really addressed like mental illness itself except for a couple of episodes and it was usually like this person just needs to like go off and do their own thing cuz they don't fit in your freaking society but they had a counselor on the ship who wasn't there to deal with crazy people they were there to deal with normal everyday stress and things people were going through because they were dealing with mental health but they weren't like they weren't saying that we aren't going to have mental pro health problems in the future. We're just going to accept they're there and have people around to deal with them. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know help people get through things, and uh, you know if we need more intervention that will deal with that when it comes around. But we're on a spaceship. We're going through you know, you know thousands of light years over the course of our voyage here, encountering all sorts of weird stuff and aliens and you know you know crazy stuff that's trying to kill us. Stuff that's trying to make friends with us, and sometimes we can't tell which one is which, and people are getting hurt, there's people are dying, there are, you know, our bodies are being, you know, whisked away through all sorts of, uh, you know, alternative dimensions and things like that. So there's going to be a little stress on the mind there. So having somebody on board who can sort of help with that on top of just the normal issues people have in general is a, probably a good idea, yes. I see where this episode came from, because it's the late 60s, science is fixing everything. So, like, when they first developed some of the, like, ways to treat mental illness with medications, it was amazing, because you had, you know, you had someone who had had a severe psychological break that just sat in a room not being able to interact with people and then all of a sudden you could give them this antipsychotic and like antipsychotics are pretty horrible generally but when you use them in those situations a person goes from like unresponsive and unable to like do anything except sit in a room to basic to like near functional so it's it looks like a freaking miracle cure so of course people got super excited and they're like, oh my god, if we can do this with this, soon we'll be able to do it with everything and like mental problems will be a thing of the past. So I understand where this comes from. So it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, allure that could all kind of go away, but unfortunately things don't work out quite so easily. Mm -hmm. But now we're taking the medication. Like the thing that horrified me 
especially in that story where they're giving younger and younger children antipsychotics. Some people do see improvements from taking like psychiatric medication. I'm not trying to discount that. But if it's the first thing we jump to, we know that these pills are actually, they, they're really strong medications. They are horrible for you. They often take something like 20 years off your life expectancy. That's going to be you know, screwing up your biochemistry and things like that. And we run into problems like some, it's, it's an issue because we don't fully understand something like bipolar disorder, and it's a pretty horrible thing to live with. But if you're on lithium for bipolar disorder, you hit a point where you have to choose between having functional kidneys and going back to having bipolar disorder. So um, do you want to uh, have to get a kidney transplant or, uh, and maybe that even won't work? Or do you want to uh, you know, suffer what you had before? So I do think it's just my view with these is we have to take it all with kind of a grain of salt because we haven't fixed it just because we have a medication for it. Because, like, that's not a permanent solution. You can't treat all, you can't treat all of this like it's a chronic condition because it's just unmanageable that way. People are getting killed by the medications. I, I think there is an episode of Star Trek out there that I think perhaps touches on this a bit better uh, than this particular episode. Uh, it's from uh, Star Trek Voyager. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not a hand. All right. Uh, there's an episode called Latent Image where uh, the, the you know, Robert Cardis character, the doctor, the emergency medical hologram, uh, finds out that someone's been tempering, uh, tampering with his memory, mm. that some, some of his past experiences have been locked out and deleted or you know, covered up so he can't access them. And it turns out over the course of the episode that there had been an event where he uh, had to make a hard choice between saving person A or saving person B. And the situation was that his ethical program and subroutines, whatever, couldn't you know weigh one more than the other. So they're exactly equal in as far as his calculation was concerned, uh, as far as doing triage and things like that. So he picked the person that he was closer to personally and saved their life while the other person died. And because he 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 found himself, you know, acting you know in this sort of uh, fashion, suddenly he started having an ethical dilemma, uh, you know, that could you know, in you know in his program and couldn't sort of sort itself out. And the you know the the crew's initial reaction is like, oh, we'll just delete those memories, and suddenly it's not a problem anymore. And so that was the miracle pill. Uh, pill. And then he realized much later in the series, which is what the you know, during the actual course of the episode. That oh this is a thing that happened someone's been someone tampered with me and I maybe there's some sort of plot against me or the ship or something like that and eventually you know it all comes out what happened and and instead of you know uh, you know just deleting his memory again he argues like no this is you know this is you know something I kind of have to face and you know also uh, seven of nine comes in and argues sort of the same thing and and so the the end of the episode is him having to sort of work through this this uh, mental uh, issue he's uh, had to suffer instead of going with the easy path of just sort of leading up all over and just sort of resetting to the previous, uh, you know, uh, uh, save affairs. And so he he's obviously struggling, but everyone's around him is trying to help as best they can. They're not very good at it, but he'll, he'll eventually get for, uh, working <laughs> out. Yeah, they always had kind of halfways on Voyager where they had a good message and then at the end it's like, but we don't know how to deliver on it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I will say that because they're actually saying, okay, this is something that he has to work out and come to terms with, that is, 
you know, as far as you know, you know, understanding his own behavior and his own logic and all that, that he's you know, the, the the path forward is the harder path, and sometimes that's what you need to take. Yeah, I do agree with that one as a better message. Supposed to. Well, we're going to give you an injection. <laughs> well, we've run a bit over, and we've been talking about depressing things. Yes, so let's get silly. Ah, it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hello everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show, where your host here is going to be giving out a few more prizes to some of those folks who've been scoring up uh, super high here. And uh, our first one is the Evil Twin Prize, which goes to Garth, naturally, for being an evil uh, Governor Corey, an evil Kirk, and even an evil Spock. What does he win, Gepwin? He wins the Oscars Best Actor. He has such range. He can change not only change his body, but he acts indistinguishable from any of them. But even someone like Kirk or Spock, who he's seen for all the five minutes, it's just an incredible acting job, and he deserves a round of applause. Hmm, excellent, excellent. Uh, this actually reminds me of a, uh, a book called The Golden Globe, where there's a character that could uh, change his uh, form a certain uh, amount. Though they only made use of it for like the first half of the book. Anyway, <laughs> our second prize is the Tudaya's Logical Prize, which goes to Marta for trying to kill Kirk because she loves him so much, I guess? I guess it's supposed to make sense to her, but I don't know. What does she win, Gepwin? Marta wins that ceremonial dagger from the other episode. Cause th- will someone stab him already? <laughs> it is well past time, isn't it? Ho ho! Our final prize is the Kill Your Heroes prize, which goes to Kirk for being, you know, a big Garth fanboy. And then find out maybe that maybe he's not such a cool fellow after all. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins Garth action figure with awesome torture chair action action. Does he have kung fu grip as well? Yeah. Also, we should stop doing this hero thing with military leaders. Like military leaders are good at leading military things for a reason. They're often not great people. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So let's just go ahead and kill our heroes today and uh, call it a day. How are you, Kepwin? Yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> All right, let's take it away. Uh, Until next time on the uh, Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. So then, are are we dealing with uh, more weirdness next week? Well, we've got... I, I can't decide if this is a sentence fragment or not. Sounds like it. Well, yeah, it is because it has like a I forget what you call it. It has a it has a descript a thing that's like an undefined pronoun sort of thing. Let that be your last battlefield. It's not defining what that is, so I think it is a fragmentary sentence or it at least needs a lead-in sentence. Now, is it this or that? Is that over there, perhaps? Is it here? Is it there? Is it everywhere? Uh, also, I did forget. There's a, there's an explanation for the last one. It's from uh, it's from Masquerade of Pandora. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. So if you piss off the gods, they're gonna come back and smack you up. Okay, I understand. All right, so <laughs> now we're on. Let that be your last battlefield. I haven't heard. I don't think anyone remembers these episodes because the names are too convoluted and weird. I know this episode. Oh, no. I know. I, I, I I, I don't think I've seen it other than when I was very young, so I don't remember all the details. 
but it has some very specific, famous sort of aspects of it. Let's see. Refugee from Planet Charton. Oh, oh, okay. It's the racism episode. Yep. <laughs> We're finally here. <laughs> We're finally going to talk about racism in Star Trek. <laughs> it's the look how stupid your racism is, you stupid, stupid person. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've been looking forward to seeing how they handle this one. Yeah. Probably not it's well. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Maybe well, they uh, give so one of them a mirror and go like, oh, look, now you look just like the other guy. Wait, wait. That, maybe that's the solution. You send half of them to the mirror universe. <laughs> and then everything's fixed, right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to read some Dr. Seuss for this one. <laughs> the star-bellied oh, sneeches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did he handle racism so much better than... <laughs> it involved like a machine that like put on or remove stars from your Why belly. is Dr. Seuss better at dealing with racism than any other contemporary writer? Because Dr. Seuss kicked ass. Yeah. <laughs> And then they named a medical building after him. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to see whether or not 60s Star Trek can delicately handle racism next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. Do, 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 do. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>